turn in your Bibles uh, to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation as we continue our study through the Word. Now, you'll remember that God had been pouring out His judgments during the Great Tribulation period, and, and you'll remember that those judgments were concluded with those seven bowls that were now poured out, the seven vials. And, and that we saw back in the 16th chapter. And, and so the wrath of God now complete, uh, the earth is now judged. And, and you'll remember that it was time for the return of Jesus Christ. But there was a pause right there at the end of chapter 16. And we moved into chapter 17 and 18, which were known as a, a parenthetical pause. It means that we were going to stop and go in depth and review some events that took place earlier chronologically. And then we see that chapter 19 picks up where chapter 16 had left off. You remember that those two chapters, chapters 17 and 18, dealt with Babylon. And the judgment of a Babylon, you remember there were two Babylons. There was the spiritual Babylon, which was the false religion, the one world religious system. And, and that was represented, personified by a, a harlot. And you remember how the harlot was riding the beast. Uh, and so the Antichrist and this one world religious system are going to be connected together. The Antichrist is going to be very supportive of this one world religious system until he fully engulfs uh, himself with his power, and at that point, he himself destroys the one world religious system by simply declaring that he is God and demands that the whole entire world worship him. He casts the one world religious system aside and requires that the whole world worship him. You'll remember that chapter 18 talked about the judgment of the commercial Babylon. You remember that the Antichrist hijacks uh, commerce that he himself forces every single person to take the mark of the beast, that you can't buy, you can't sell unless you are a part of this. And so the commerce of the entire world now comes underneath his control. And, and you will remember that we saw the judgment upon that. The commercial Babylon was represented by a city. And we saw the destruction of that great city there in the 18th chapter. As we move now to the 19th chapter, we're going to shift uh, back to heaven again. S chapters 17 and 18 had to do with the things that were happening on the face of the earth. But as we move to chapter 19, we are going to see the throne room once again. We are going to be experiencing the things that are going to be going on in heaven. So chapter 19, verse 1, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So we see that there is this great multitude that is there in heaven. Back in chapter 7, we saw the great multitude uh, was referring to the martyr dead that had died during the great tribulation. They are going to be especially rejoicing over the judgment uh, of the Babylons because they themselves uh, lost their lives uh, during that tribulation period. 
The world is going to require you to worship the Antichrist. And if you will not worship the Antichrist, you will be killed. You are required to take the mark of the beast. If you will not take the mark of the beast, you are going to be killed. And so we see that Christians, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, will not be able to worship the Antichrist as God. And so there is going to be a merciless slaughter of believers. These are the martyrs that are there in heaven. And when God judges now, uh, the Babylon that cost them their, their life, they will now be vindicated. And so and here we see the judgments uh, upon the Babylons. And, and again they said, uh, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen and Alleluia, Alleluia. That word, hallelujah. Say that with me. Hallelujah. I want you to know you just spoke Hebrew. I don't know if you know that now. If people say, do you speak Hebrew? Say, hallelujah. Hallelujah <laughs> <laughs> isn't a word. It's actually three words. Here we have what's called a transliteration. It's three Hebrew words. It's a phrase that then we just give the sound of it. But the three words in Hebrew are Hallel, Hallel means praise in Hebrew. Lu means the, and Yah is Yahweh is God. So Hallel, praise the Lord. And so the phrase, praise the Lord, Hebrew, Hallel, Lu, Yah, is Alleluia, which we say praise the Lord. So when we read Alleluia or Hallelujah, either one are both transliterations of praise the Lord. So what's happening? They're praising the Lord. They're praising the Lord over the things that are uh, taking place. Here we see that, uh, that again, the 24 elders uh, cry out, Alleluia. The, the multitude in heaven is crying out, Hallelujah. And it says that her smoke rises up forever and ever. They are rejoicing now over the judgment uh, upon the Babylon. Now, the Babylons, both the commercial enterprise Babylon and the religious Babylon, both judged by God. And, and then we see afterwards what? It says the smoke rises up forever. This speaks of the fact that, yes, the there is the judgment uh, upon the, uh, the harlot and, and upon Babylon. And that judgment is just the beginning because that judgment of the rebellion against God will continue for all eternity. It reminds us that there are two eternal resting places in God's presence and outside of God's presence, away from him. And so here we see that the separation, the casting into the lake of fire and outer darkness, this now is a judgment that is going to be eternal. Every single person on the face of the earth is either going to end up in the presence of God for all eternity or separated from God for all eternity. And, and we have those words, heaven or paradise or the presence of the Lord. That all connotates connection with God. And then there is uh, outer darkness, lake of fire, hell, all of these things. These are all phrases now that speak about and describe being relationally separate uh, from God. And so here we see that they're judged, but the smoke rises forever because that judgment will be an eternal judgment to hear an eternal separation from God. Verse 5, we see that it says, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, 
all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. This voice comes from the throne, but it's the voice of an angel. And so there is a powerful angel that now gives the instruction to praise uh, our God. In verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, which is praise the Lord, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Here we see that now John is looking at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the glorious feast where the bride of Christ is now going to be celebrating with the groom, with Jesus Christ. Throughout the scriptures, we see the, uh, the, the illustration of marriage as a description of God's relationship with his people. In the Old Testament, we see that the nation of Israel was spoken of as the bride of God. And in Hosea, it talks about her as the unfaithful wife of Yahweh and that she will eventually be restored into relationship in the millennial reign of Christ. In the New Testament, we see that the church itself is the bride of Christ. And so we see this picture. But there is to be now a marriage and a supper of the Lamb that is going to take place, a, a wedding celebration there in heaven between the bride of Christ and the groom, Jesus Christ himself. Now, to fully understand this, you have to really have the background of the way that they celebrated a Jewish wedding because this is the context that we have. Back in those days, uh, when a bride and a groom were going to be married, the first thing that happened was the families got together, and they negotiated this, and they came to the agreement that, yes, this bride and this groom was going to be wed. And the next thing they would do is that they would plan for a betrothal ceremony. A betrothal ceremony, the families would gather, and, and there would be the the future bride and the future groom. And at this ceremony, they would actually give their vows. And at that point, they were considered legally married. And if you broke off an engagement during a betrothal period, unlike an engagement that we have today, you had to file divorce papers to break. You got divorced before you ever even got married <laughs> in the betrothal period. So you were now considered to be legally uh, married, bound by God in your covenant relationship with each other, but you haven't consummated the marriage yet. At that point in time, the bride would go back to her family and the groom would go back to his family. And the groom then would start to build an addition with his father on his father's house. And that addition now would be the dwelling place, would be the space where after the wedding, the bride and the groom would go and they would be connected to the, the groom's family and they would be connected to the living quarters of the father's house. Now, you will remember also that uh, the wedding date would then be set. And so the, the bride would now know the day of the wedding. But what she wouldn't know is what time the wedding was. And so on her wedding day, she wouldn't get up early and she would get herself dressed and get herself adorned. And then 
not know when during the course of the day the, the groom was going to show up. The fun of being the groom was the surprise uh, of when you showed up. There were the early risers that were there bright and early, and there were the end-of-day kind of grooms, you know, that, uh, that's not... But, he would take his, his groomsmen with him and then dressed up, they would march. They would parade through the city on the way over to the, the bride's house. Whenever you saw the, the groomsmen with the groom walking through, you know they're on their way to go surprise the bride. And, and the day has come, the time has come. They show up at the bride's house and it's the bride's responsibility to be ready to go. And so they would then travel in procession back to the, uh, the groom's uh, house. And, and there they would now once again uh, give their vows, exchange them now in the marriage ceremony. And then afterwards would start the wedding celebration. And the wedding celebration was one of the most joyous events in all uh, of their culture and of their time. The bride and the groom, all the friends would come, and, and these receptions, the wedding reception, this would last not hours but days, seven days. It was a week-long celebration to where the, the families would be coming over, your friends would all be coming over, and, and you were considered to be the king and the queen of this feast, and, and it would last for a week, and it was considered to be the highlight of your life, one of the highlights of your life in the way that, that a wedding and the new life started. Now you remember that Jesus has now betrothed us to him. We, we are betrothed when you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That, that is the betrothal that has taken place. And, and the vows, Jesus promises that he will never leave you, that he will never forsake you, that, that you are his and he is yours. And, and you have made that promise of fidelity to uh, one another. And, and then this is what he said. He said that I'm going to my father's house. And in my father's house, there's many mansions and I go there to prepare a place that where I am what that you may be uh, also you see now the betrothal has taken place and where does he go he goes back to his father's house and and then he tells us but I'm going to return and I'm going to come and get you that's the rapture of the church and so he doesn't tell us the hour. So we're required to be ready at all times uh, now for the, the return because at any moment he could come and, and that's it. Thessalonians tells us uh, now that, uh, that he comes and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive with the shout of a trumpet will be changed in a moment uh, and then we will go with him and where he is we will be forevermore. And so we see that then we return back with him, raptured off the bride now complete. And what happens? We go to heaven and now we celebrate the marriage supper of the lamb, the feast. It doesn't last for seven days. <laughs> it lasts for seven years. And so while the tribulation is going on down here during these seven years, this is the marriage celebration of the lamb that is going on in heaven. And you are a part of it. There is a, a plate up in heaven that has your name placard, right, and sitting on it, and it is uh, ready for you. And, uh, and so here we see that John, he sees the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, this incredible, unbelievable feast 
where we are all sitting down and, and celebrating now together with loved ones and we are in heaven in our new bodies and we are experiencing the joy now of uh, of being in the presence uh, of the lord and john is just overwhelmed overwhelmed with how spectacular and how beautiful this in this scene is in verse 9 then he said to me right blessed are those who are called to the marriage and the supper but let's do verse 8 and to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts uh, of the saints and so we see that we are arrayed uh, now in the royal righteousness of, of God. We're arrayed now in the righteous acts of the saints. What are the righteous acts of the saints? That's agape love. That is when you now have allowed God's love to flow through you. There's phileo love, which is the friendship love. And then there's the sacrificial love where, where you sacrifice yourself to love others, to give with no expectation of anything in return. It is just God's love flowing through you onto others' people. And, and that can be in your own homes. Husbands and wives are to serve one another, to, to sacrifice uh, ourselves, to bless those that are around us. It happens in church when you serve others here and you find a place to use your gifts uh, within the church. It happens in the community. It happens with strangers. Those are the acts, the selfless acts. And now, to where you are loving others. And so uh, we see that these are now the, uh, the righteous acts uh, of the saint. And, and then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Another way of saying that is blessed is every single person who enters into the gates of heaven. Amen. How blessed we are when you approach the gates of heaven and the gates open for you. And you enter in compared to when the gates stay closed. And you are not welcomed in. Blessed is every single person who is invited. And, and when you come to the gates, you say, I'm an invited guest. Check the guest register. My name's on it. <laughs> I have a seat reserved. It's waiting for me. I had an invitation and I accepted that invitation and blessed is every single person that, uh, that attends and that is welcomed into the, the kingdom of God. And, and he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. John is just overcome with, with the power, the beauty, the, the amazing, everything pure and white and clean and the feast is set out and all of your loved ones gathered together there and we live in harmony, connected to God and to one another to celebrate the, the Lord. The things of this world are past. Every tear wiped away, every sorrow, every bit of brokenness that you have healed, cleansed, redeemed, restored. You're in a new body and you are there and it is the beginning of the glorious reign with Christ and that all into eternity. And John just falls down now before this angel and just begins to uh, worship him and and the angel says to him look it but he said to me see that you do not do that i i'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of jesus worship god <laughs> this is just an angel he says i'm a created being just like you're a created being don't worship me I'm not to worship any created being we're to worship god worship him only and 
Don't worship anybody else. And so here we see that we are not to worship any created being. Satan is a created being. And what did he desire? Worship. Worship me. That's what he desires. He even desires that Jesus Christ himself worship him. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give you everything that you, that you ever wanted. It's the same lie that he promises to every single person. Just follow me and I'll fulfill you. You'll have everything you ever wanted. You want that career? You want your name and lights? You want your fame? What would it profit a man if you gained the entire world and lost your soul? It's not a new thing. He wants you to worship him and he'll lie to you to get that to happen and to get you separated from God. We're not to worship any created being. And so, here we see this powerful scene. And, and then the angel says something that's amazing and insightful. Look at For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's the spirit of prophecy. Jesus Christ is uh, the spirit of prophecy. You see, prophecy is, is all about uh, the Lord and the things uh, of uh, God. We see that the Bible declares that, uh, that Jesus uh, is uh, the very Son of God, and the Scriptures proclaim that and testify to Jesus Christ and, and to bring glory and honor to Him. The person and message of Jesus is the essence of all true prophecy. What is prophecy? Prophecy is the foretelling of the events that will take place. And prophecy is the very thing that God uses to be able to prove to us that the Bible is the true and the living God and, and that there is no other God. How do we know that what we worship is true? How do we know that the things that we're looking at are, are actually true? Every single religion has its collection of holy writings. Every single collection of holy writings has moral platitudes and instructs us how to get along with our neighbors and to be nice and kind and generous. And, and all of them have that in common. But yet they also are mutually exclusive to one another. So they cannot all be true. And if they're not all true, then that means that there's one that is true. So how do we tell the one that is true from the ones that aren't true? You've probably wondered that in your own life. I know I wondered that. I wondered that when I was eight years old. I'll never forget. I became aware that we played with all the kids in our neighborhood. We had this great neighborhood. I had this great group of friends. And, and after school, we would be playing street hockey or ice hockey or any of the different things that we did after school. Until the street lights came on, then we came home for dinner. <laughs> I played with these friends. I went to school with them. I realized that I was together with them in school. I realized that I was together with them after school and when we played. But on Sundays, we all went to different places, different houses of worship. And I wonder, why are we in different places on Sunday when we're together and all the other different times? And I began to realize uh, that it's, they were going wherever their parents were taking them. And I realized that I am who I am because of my parents, and they are because of their parents, and, and they're in the cars, and cars go where parents tell them to go. <laughs> the only thing a kid is allowed to do in a car is ask the question, are we there yet? <laughs> And so I went to my mom and I asked her, I said, Mom, 
how come Billy goes here on Sunday and my other friend Joe goes over here on Sunday and, and Sam goes over here on Sunday and, and how come we go to the place of worship that we go to? And she just looked at me with the kindest, lovingest, gentlest smile and she patted my head and she said, because you're lucky. <laughs> And I walked away, and under my breath, I said, nice try, Mom. <laughs> but from that moment on, I wanted to know, where is truth? I don't care where truth is. I want the truth. I don't want to be lied to. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to chase after something and then find out that this was all just a pack of lies. What's the truth? And now we have the truth about the eternal state and condition of our souls here. Some people are teaching that we have to come back as a grasshopper and then we evolve to a cat and then do a thing. Depending on your life, you have to keep coming back over and over until, until you're all others. Just that you're dead, that's it. There isn't anything uh, afterwards. And you have got so many different viewpoints that are out there, so many different religious systems and beliefs. It's like, which one is true? I want to know what's true. I want to know what's true. And wherever that is, that's where I'm chasing. And I remember that I started to read the, the Word of God, and, and I came to the book of Isaiah, and in the book of Isaiah, God answers that very question. He knows that Satan is going to confuse it by putting counterfeit religions in, in the world. That they're going to look really similar and it's going to be hard to tell. A good counterfeit is hard to tell from an original, but there's always a way to tell. There's always a way to tell the original from the copies. And in the book of Isaiah, this is what God said. That you might know, and I'm reading along in Isaiah, and it says that you might know that I am the true and the living God and there is no other God. And it just stopped me right there. I'm like, Lord, that's the exact question I've been chasing in my heart. That you might know. And that word for know means know beyond a shadow of a doubt with absolute 100% certainty. That you might know that. That I'm the true and the living God and there is no other God. And then it says, I will tell you the end from the beginning. I am the one that stands outside of time. I will tell you the things that are going to happen in minute and detail. That when they come to pass, that you might know that I am the true and the living God. And there is what? No other God. There is no other God. There's not competing gods that are out there, major gods, minor gods, and little gods, and all kinds of things. There is no other God but but me. And so God demonstrated that by giving us the prophecies. And the prophecies are about the redemption of the world and about Jesus Christ. In the very garden, what Adam and Eve lost right then, he promised that he's going to send a Savior to the world, that what they lost and what they lose, intimacy, connection, and fellowship with God through sin. That's what it cost us. And God says, I'm going to redeem that and I'm going to fix that and I'm going to restore it and we are going to be connected and we are going to be in each other's presence and that for all eternity and I have a plan for that. And we see that it begins right there in the seed of the woman, he will come. The first description of the Messiah that would come. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to come twice. He's going to die on a cross. You see the prophecies now laid out throughout the scriptures. And he embedded them in the word of God. 
not through one author. 66 different books written on different continents in different languages all combined together to form one comprehensive picture and portrait of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, and the redemption of mankind in the eternal state of where we're headed. And so the prophetic word, the prophecy of the word of God is what separates it. If you're ever confused, if you ever start to get confused on what is truth and what is not truth, there is no other collection of holy writings that would dare to tell you the things that are going to happen in any type of detail. Why? Because the minute that those things don't happen, then you can just discard the whole thing because if some of it isn't true, then... How do you tell what is true and what isn't true that's in it? Just discard it. That you might know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I dove into prophecy and I began to read the prophecies and to realize how much prophecy there is in the scripture and the evidence is absolutely incontrovertible and overwhelming. It's not a blind faith at all. It's a reasonable faith, an absolutely sane faith and that is based upon the demonstration of the proof that God is who he says he is, that he stands outside of time, that he knows the beginning from the end. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. And I say what I mean and I mean what I say. And you can trust me. And if you can't trust God, then who can you trust? And if you can't trust the one that stands outside of time and tells it to you in advance so that you can be certain of the things that you believe, then what do you believe and how do you know what you believe? Hmm. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The person and message of Jesus is the essence of all true prophecy. Now I saw verse 11, heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Jesus stands up from the wedding feast and it's time to go. Seven years we've been celebrating and feasting and enjoying and, and now it's time to, uh, to get to work. And Jesus stands up and he jumps onto a, a white horse and it says that on his head now are uh, crowns. Th those crowns, uh, there's two types of crowns in, in the Greek language. And there is diadems and stephanoses. Stephanoses is, is when you win a marathon, they put a stephanos on you. It was recognition for achievement. It was mm, good job and, and, and they give you a stephanos. A diadem is the crown of royalty, of power and authority. Upon his head is diadems, plural. It is the crowns of crowns. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And, and now upon his head, crowns, the diadems. When he came, the first time he wore a crown. But it wasn't diadems. It was the crown of thorns that he wore. The second time he comes back, not as the lamb, but as the conquering king who is now going to establish the rule and reign over this world in righteousness where there will not be injustice. When you look around the world today, do you see injustice? Do you experience injustice? All injustice is going to be wiped out. All injustice is going to be wiped out. The lion is going to lie down with the lamb and, and we are going to live in harmony and peace. Nature with man, man with man, man with God. Harmony all the way around, and we will experience what the world was meant to be like. And for a thousand years, 
we will enjoy that. And, and Jesus Christ stands up, gets on his horse, and now is ready to return. And, and we will return with him. His eyes were a flame of fire. You remember in chapter 1 when John turns around and sees the, the vision of the risen Lord and his eyes are like flames of fire. In verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. Hmm. He's clothed in a robe, but his rub has stains on it. Blood stains. I believe that those stains are the stain of his own blood. The most precious blood that there is. The blood that washes away our sin. It was the price that he paid to redeem you, to restore us back into right relationship with, uh, with God. And it was the demonstration of the agape love. No greater love is a man than this. And he would lay down his life uh, for his friend. It was the greatest act of love that has ever been in the history uh, of the world or will ever be. And it was a demonstration of how valuable you are how much he loved you, that he was willing to die for you. And there is the, the proof of his great love there upon his outer garment that he wears. And his name is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. He is the Word. He is the Logos. He is the perfect personification of absolute truth. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So we get white horses too. If you don't know how to ride, you're going to learn. <laughs> We come, out of the, we come out of the glorious marriage supper of the Lamb and we got horses uh, now for us, white horses. And, and we are going to go and do battle with the Lord. He's going to return to uh, earth now. And I, I want you to notice the weapons that we have. None. <laughs> white linen. Who wears their Sunday best into a battle? <laughs> They're spit shine we are in our best we just came out of the feast we just came out of the marriage supper of the lamb and we're jumping on horses and going into a battle why because he's going to do all the fighting <laughs> our groom is single-handedly going to take uh, out the armies that are going to be standing against uh, us and and it says in verse 15 now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron rod of iron means absolute power and authority he's omnipotent he has all power all authority now we're going to see that he's going to rule in righteousness though and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of uh, lords. And, and then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried, and cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. So, we have just been feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then there's another feast, and we see that now this the angel standing in the sun, he cries to all the birds that there is going to be a great feast. He is talking about the battle of Armageddon. And these birds now are going to be called to, that is going to be a feast for birds. The enemies of God are going to be a feast for birds. 
And it says that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all people free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now you'll remember the events that lead up to the Battle of Armageddon. You'll remember that the Antichrist rises with his armies out of Europe. He is then going to take his armies and he is going to march into the continent of Africa. He is going to dominate Egypt and head into Ethiopia and he's consolidating all of his powers. When the kings of the east, they decide they've had it with the Antichrist. He's promised peace and prosperity. All that's happened are these judgments of God. Everything is going to be a wreck. And they decide that they are going to rebel against the Antichrist. And they raise up an army, China, and the other nations that are gathered together, led. These are the kings of the East. And they are going to put together an army of over 200 million footmen. And they are going to come down from the east and they're going to cross the Euphrates River. The Bible tells us that the Euphrates is going to be dammed so that 200 million men can march uh, across it. And then they are going to head down towards uh, Israel. And the forces of the Antichrist are going to be coming out of Africa, out of Egypt. And they're going to come right through Gaza. And they are then going to head in. The troops of the east are going to come on the inland path. And you see the, out, the, 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 the path by the sea is the, is the outward path that the Antichrist forces are going to be on. But they're going to cut in inward now to where the two armies are going to meet in the Valley of Armageddon. And it is here now that these two armies are going to face off with one another. And as the conflict begins between the two of them, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, appears. Now remember, the kings of the east are fighting for world domination. And the Antichrist is fighting for world domination. So both of them are seeking to control the face of the earth. And when Christ arises, they are going to look at him and both armies are going to say, we're not having you rule over us. Today, the world shakes their fists at God and says, we will not have you rule over us. Today in our nation, we are seeing over and over, we will not have you rule over us. And we see our nation trying to force the, uh, the hand of God out of our country. We will not have his name in school. We will not have prayer. We will not have his name on monuments. And, and we will not allow manger scenes on public property. We will not have God in our country. They will shake their fists at him and they will then mm, turn and fight against uh, him. It's not much of a fight, actually. <laughs> They say the Battle of Armageddon. It's, it's not really that. They just turn to face off against him, and he just goes, bam, and it's over. Just the breath of his nostrils. It's actually the sword from his mouth that just mm, takes him out. And the rebellion, the final rebellion of man against God shaking their fist. Now, I want you to know that, that these are unbelievers. Remember, everyone had to take the mark of the beast. And so these are all people with the mark of the beast that are over the face of the earth. And, and now God is going to judge all of them in their rebellion in one act at his second coming in the battle of Armageddon and wipe out all the armies of the earth that would oppose him. 
In verse 20, it says, And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So the lake of fire. Now, the lake of fire doesn't get the souls that are headed there until after the great white throne of judgment. And the great white throne of judgment is not going to happen until after the end of the millennial reign. So when a person dies today, if they're not in faith, they go to Hades. Remember, Hades had two compartments, the bosom of Abraham and then the place of holding where they're reserved to stand before God, give an account for their lives, and they will be judged, and then they will be sent into outer darkness or to the lake of fire. So the lake of fire right now doesn't have anybody in it. It's prepared, but there's no one in it. But these two... They get the fast pass. <laughs> the Antichrist and the false prophet, they skip Hades, and they skip the white throne of judgment, and these two that wreak so much havoc on the face of the earth, uh, they get plunged right into the lake of fire. They're going to be joined later on by everybody else, but that will happen after the great white throne of judgment. And the rest, it says, verse 21, were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled uh, with their flesh. And then we're going to see that the millennial reign is going to be set up. There is going to be the, the judgment of the nations. And, and now the righteousness of Christ is going to be established on the face of the earth. As we close our study here, I want to draw our attention for a minute to verse 9. And it says, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. To the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are called to it. I want you to know that the invitation has been given to every single person to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's interesting because this is a formal dinner, a formal celebration, and it requires you to RSVP. I don't know if you've ever been to a fancy party or to a wedding reception, and, and oftentimes they say, you're invited. We have made preparation for you. We've made provision. We want you to come. Let us know how many are coming and, and sign it. And the reason they do that is so they can make a nice seating chart and put everybody next to people that they would be uncomfortable with so that you would be blessed at the party so they would have enough food and the provision because normally you're not eating hot dogs and hamburgers, but you're eating something that's, uh, that's a little bit nicer at a banquet. And, and so there needs to be provision uh, and preparation and you need to RSVP in order to be there. And sometimes you get an invitation like that and you have to RSVP and, and you just kind of set it aside and you're like, I mean, I'm going to check my calendar. I'm going to talk to whoever I need to talk to and I'll, and I'll get back to that. And I'll get back to it. But if that invitation gets uh, lost and if you get busy with other things and, and then you suddenly discover it, but you have not RSVP'd, you will not be welcome at the celebration. You will be excluded. You have been invited by God himself into heaven to be at the celebration, to be a part of that celebration, to have your seat. But you have to RSVP. You have to respond to that invitation. You remember that Jesus gave the parable of the wedding. 
and, and that the invitation went out to all the nobles. The king was, was having a wedding and he was going to throw the reception and all the preparations were made and, and now he sends the messengers out throughout that now is the time of the feast and come and, and they didn't come. And they came to the king and they said, we invited them, and, but they're not coming. And then the king said, then send the messengers out into the highways, into the byways, into everybody else, that, that my table will be full at the celebration of, of the wedding. And you see, that was a picture of the invitation that went to the Jews. The Jews were the nobles. They were God's people, and, and he invited them. The Messiah is here, and you need to accept the invitation that he's giving to the kingdom of God, and, and they rejected it. And so then the word went, then go to every Gentile, go to the four corners of the earth. You invite everybody now. And my table will be full. And every single person gets an invitation. And every single person either RSVPs or you decline it. And whether you spend eternity with God or apart from God, it's totally your decision on what you did with his invitation. The heart of God is that none... God wills that none should perish and that all should come to everlasting life. He's, he's ready and waiting and has a space and a place and a name and you've been invited. And, and now the question is, have you responded and given your RSVP? Every single person in here, every single person in our community, in our city, in our country, in the world, every single one of us has either responded to the RSVP or has not responded to the RSVP. There's only two groups. You've either already done it or you haven't done it, and, and that's the group. And, and whichever group you're in, when you breathe your last breath, that becomes your eternal destination. There's no changing it after you breathe your last breath. Some people, they get the invitation, they hear about it, and they go, you know, I'm going to think about this more. I'm going I'm to RSVP later. And they set it aside. But I want you to know that but that's the most important decision that you'll ever make in your entire life. There is not a more important decision that, that a person has. And you may say, well, you know what? I'll decide on this weighty matter tomorrow. I want to I ponder it more. And, and I would say, I understand that. But here is the challenge that I would pose back to you. Do you know that your next breath isn't even promised to you? It's not promised to any one of us. And you are taking the most important decision that there is in your entire life and you're delaying it the Bible says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to respond. Today is the day. If you have not filled out your RSVP card, then I want you to take it out right now. <laughs> and we're going to get that filled out right now before you leave here today. How do you do that? I'm going to invite you to come forward as we worship through this song. And I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer that is the filling out of the RSMVB card. It is the, the inviting Jesus Christ into your heart and into your life. And what you receive, you'll receive the wedding garment, the robe of righteousness. Your sins will be washed away. Your name is going to be written in the Lamb's book of life. And you have RSVP'd in our absolute certainty of God's promise that you will spend all eternity with Him. And so, this morning... I'm going to invite you to get up out of your seat and to come forward and to respond to that invitation that you might know, that you might live for the rest of your life with that 
absolute hope. And you become part of the bride. And, and he doesn't give you a diamond engagement ring, which is the, uh, the sign that we use in our in culture. But do you know what he gives you when you're betrothed to him? He seals you with the Holy Spirit and places his Holy Spirit inside of you. And you become a new creation, the Bible says, and you become part of his bride, part of the church. And you will have your place, the wedding supper of the Lamb. If that's you, this morning you're probably growing uncomfortable. There's a decision that you've never really wanted to make. You don't like making decisions. You're kind of just fenced in right now. I want you to know that's the Holy Spirit bringing conviction on you right now. He's speaking absolute truth to you. His arms are wide open. He's inviting you, and he is asking you to RSVP in the positive. And if that's you right now, you're going to have to make that decision. I want you to know no one else can RSVP for you. If you're married, your spouse, no matter how much they love you, they can't fill it out for you. Your parents love the Lord. They can't do it for you. Your friends, your best friend, your very bestie, best friend can't do it for you. You have to do it. You have to do it. And so, this is your time. The invitation's in your hands right now.